A certain tightrope walker publicized that he was going to walk across Niagara Falls. A large crowd gathered. People have done this. A large crowd gathered. He dusted his hands and feet with powdered chalk and he grasped with both hands a pole that he was using for balance and proceeded confidently across the rope. He not only went across, but he made the return trip. The crowd stood amazed and responded with cheers. The man announced that he would do it again, this time without the pole. Again, he went successfully over and back. Stepping off the rope, he turned to the crowd and asked how many thought he could make a third trip, this time with a wheelbarrow. Some of them responded with confidence. Others were a little bit skeptical. He set off on his task and completed it with the greatest of ease. He then asked the crowd whether they believed he could do the same thing with the wheelbarrow full of cement. This time, the whole crowd responded with great confidence. By now, they know he can do it. And he did. Again, he performed the feat with unbelievable ease. And having completed these four trips successfully, he asked the spectators if they believed he could wheel a human being across the dangerous expanse. The response was unanimous. Yes, yes, of course you can do it. He can do it. And so upon their reply, he turned to a gentleman in the crowd and said, all right, my friend, let's go. Now that story captures the point of this passage today, which is that it is time to trust Jesus. It's time to trust Jesus. We could have the next slide up now, David. They say that football is a game of two halves and the Gospel of Mark can be read as a game of two halves or a tale of two halves. In the first half, the author is prompting us to ask a question, who is this? Who is Jesus? In fact, nearly everyone in the first half of Mark is asking that question one way or another. And in the second half, the author is asking us, making us ask a second question, which is this, what did Jesus come to do? Why has he come? So the story of Mark can be divided into two great confessions. The first from the Apostle Peter in chapter 8 and the second from a Roman centurion at the cross in chapter 15. Two breakthrough statements. In chapter 8, Peter, when asked who Jesus is, says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. That means God's special chosen king, the one who would sort the world out. Peter is right. He sees but you can see truly who Jesus is and then fail to grasp what he came to do completely. Peter immediately does this. No sooner has he enjoyed the great breakthrough moment than Jesus speaks plainly that he must suffer many things, be killed and rise again from the dead on the third day. And Peter goes from hero to zero. He takes Jesus to one side and he actually tells him off. He says, no, no, Jesus, you can't say that. It's not what the Messiah's here to do. He completely failed to understand. You see, it's possible to see Jesus and not really see him at all. Like the crowd watching the tightrope walker, you can discover how amazing Jesus Christ is, how powerful, how competent, and then be too scared to get in the wheelbarrow. You are afraid to take a risk. You can know in your head that he's quite capable of taking your life safely through danger, and then be too afraid to act on it. And it's not simply fear that keeps us from trusting Jesus Christ, it is sin as well. The Bible shows us that faith and belief are ultimately a moral choice. 
Why is that? Because believing in Jesus means letting him be Lord of your life. Letting him be in charge of everything. If you follow Jesus, the whole of you goes in. There's nothing that he could ask of you that would be too much. And so you hold back. Often when people say they can't follow Jesus because of intellectual doubts, underneath there's a moral reason. I want to show you today, with respect, that it is ridiculous to live life trusting anything other than Jesus Christ. But we are constantly tempted to do so. I'm not saying, by the way, that you can have complete certainty. You cannot have complete certainty in anything in this life, but as far as we can be certain, we know that Jesus can be trusted. And so it is ridiculous to trust anyone more than Jesus, but we are constantly tempted to do so. It's time to trust Jesus. Three brief points show us this. No fancy points today. Here we are. We've got healings, feedings, and questions. Okay, firstly, healings. Now, ancient churches and cathedrals often had artwork in them that was called a triptych. A triptych is a picture or a carving, a relief carving on three panels, usually hinged together and used often as an altarpiece in the old Roman Catholic churches. And in our text today, we have really a beautiful triptych. The central panel has a picture of Jesus feeding 4,000 people with a few loaves and a few small fish. And it also has a, a discussion with the Pharisees and a trip in a boat with his disciples. The two flanking panels of the, this account, the, the two flanking pictures, are remarkably similar. They both show a healing. One is of a deaf and mute man, the other is of a blind man. But they're remarkably parable. Now remember, Mark is not a writer, he's an editor. He's not... Um, creating material he takes material that has been entrusted to him and he shapes it into a narrative under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so the ordering of the sequences of events in Mark's gospel is incredibly significant because it shows us his meaning we should never take these passages and verses out of context the context it would be like ripping a piece out of a, a, a piece of cloth look at the whole thing these parallels I want to just point out some parallels between these two healing miracles which we read a moment ago firstly in both cases people bring a man to Jesus and they want him to touch him first one says they want him to lay his hands on him the second one a touch secondly in both cases Jesus takes the man away from the crowd in one case he takes him out of the village another one takes him to one side thirdly Jesus in both cases does something strange involving spit isn't that strange thirdly there's a two-stage healing in both cases very unusual and finally Jesus warns both the men not to speak or to go home what's going on early readers of Mark many of them picked up on a rare word in the Greek language in chapter 7 verse 32 uh, we have it translated as the man could hardly talk could hardly talk it means that he had a severe speech impediment now this word this funny obscure word only occurs in one other place in the whole of biblical literature it's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament it's called the Septuagint and it's in Isaiah chapter 35 Mark uses this word 
very carefully as a clue to the attentive readers, a signal to look up Isaiah 35 and see what's really going on. And when you see this, it is really breathtaking. I'm going to read some of Isaiah 35. This is the end of the first part of Isaiah's great prophecy. He looks to the future and he says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, the haunts where the jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. It's a vision of a renewed creation. The wilderness and the desert becomes a luxuriant garden and a jungle. And in the midst of all this, humanity is renewed. The eyes of the blind are opened. The ears of the deaf are unstopped. They throw their hearing aids away. And the mute tongue, there's the word, shouts for joy. Now this vision in Isaiah is what will happen when the creator God returns and renews his whole creation in the age of the Messiah. God's king. Mark, by using that one little word, is showing us here that in Jesus Christ, the new age has begun. So this is far more than just a couple of another two miracle stories. Mark is waking us up to the fact that in Jesus, a whole new world is beginning. A whole new order of reality has, has commenced. The future has broken into the present. Jesus is that powerful. He does what only God could do. He can make everything new. Now, not only is Jesus powerful, but we see in our passage that he's compassionate. He's so tender. Look at verse 33 with me. This is really weird, isn't it? Verse 33 of chapter 7. I've actually forgotten my glasses today, and I'm really struggling. <laughs> Verse 33, after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. What is going on there? If you went to the doctor, now we have a number of doctors in this church, which is great, except they never give me any advice when I phone them up. They just tell me to go to the GP. Anyway, we have a number of doctors, and I know that all of them, at some, in some place, they have a stethoscope. You know, doctors always have them. At some point, they can reach into a bag and pull it out, stick it on, and just hold that thing to your chest, and you don't really know what they're doing, do you? I mean, you know they're, they're listening to your heart, but you don't know what they're listening to. But just the fact of the stethoscope gives you that little bit of confidence. This person is a real doctor, all right? Now, what Jesus does here with the spit and touching the man is the equivalent of the stethoscope. 
Because in the ancient world, people expected healers to do this. It was considered good medical practice. In fact, spit was considered to have healing properties. And touch was considered healing. That's why both times the people ask Jesus to touch the man. So what is Jesus doing here with this deaf man who cannot hear what is going on? The man who needs sign language. Jesus is using physical gestures to adapt to the communication mode of the deaf-mute man. He shows deep sympathy and personal engagement. He adapts to the man's needs. The man doesn't know what's going on, so Jesus spits to show him, I'm going to heal you now. And he play acts and says, see your ears? I'm going to open them now. It's a way of touching this man intimately in order to show him, this is okay, be reassured. Such tenderness. So Jesus, we see here, is incredibly powerful to do what only God can do and also deeply tender. But if Jesus is so powerful, why does the healing of the blind man seem to take two goes? Did you notice that? Didn't quite get it right the first time, I had to go in a second time. I know you surgeons do this occasionally. Seems to take two goes. The first time, the man, okay, there's been some spit and some whatever, and, and then he, he opens his eyes and he can sort of see. You see, I can see people, I think they are, but they sort of look like trees moving around. He's not fully seeing. Only the second time does he get full sight. Why is this? Was this just the, the hard case? No, it's here to teach us a lesson, and it's a vital one. Here it is. You can see a lot of things about Jesus and fail to really see him. You can see a lot of things about Jesus and fail to really see him, like seeing people like trees. And this comes into focus in the middle panel. I'm moving now from the healings to the feedings. Chapter 8. Let me just ask if any of this gives you here a feeling of deja vu. Notice what happens. There's a large crowd in a remote place. They've got nothing to eat and they're hungry. They've been there for quite a few days, three days, and Jesus sees that and has compassion on them and he wants to feed them. The disciples are negative, pessimistic. They see all the problems. They say it can't be done. Jesus patiently gets them to do an inventory of their scarce resources and they find that they've got a few loaves and a few small fish. So Jesus takes the bread breaks it, prays, and gets the disciples to distribute the bread. And the people eat, and everyone is satisfied. And at the end, the disciples go around and pick up basketfuls of broken pieces. There's not only enough to satisfy, there's leftovers. There's enough for your packed lunch tomorrow. Now, does any of that sound at all familiar if you've been coming to Grace Church for the last few weeks or if you've read the Bible. Does any of it sound at all familiar? Of course it does. Just a couple of pages back, chapter 6, we read the feeding of the 5,000 people and it was really similar. So what on earth is going on here? Firstly, this feeding is in non-Jewish country. Chapter 7, verse 31, the region of the Decapolis was an area of 10 independent Gentile cities. So the crowd are mostly Gentiles. The Jews regarded them as unclean people. They even called them dogs. And they would no way sit down at table and share food with a dog, with a Gentile. 
Jesus, on the other hand, invites them to dinner and provides a banquet. So this shows us that Jesus Christ will receive anyone. Cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, class barriers do not matter to him. He receives anyone. But secondly, it also shows us something very important about ourselves because we're like the disciples. We are very prone to forget. We're very prone to forget. I mean, can you believe these disciples? How could they not think this time Jesus would be able to feed the crowd? I mean, really, they were there. They gave out the food to the 5,000. They collected on that occasion 12 basketfuls left over how can they just refer back to that typical pessimistic unbelieving posture full of doubt and fear would you expect that based on previous experience they would now trust Jesus do you think the disciples are short-sighted do you think they're forgetful do you think they are dense because, of course, you would never do anything like that, would you? I mean, you would never experience the power of God in your life and then doubt that he could do it again, would you? You would never see an answer to prayer and then in future wonder if God was going to answer a prayer or if he really existed. You would never see a situation turned around and God provide for you when the chips were down. You would never experience something like that and then doubt him the next time it happened, would you? Would you? You know you do. We all do this. These things are written down to teach us about ourselves. We should see ourselves in these disciples. And so the next point, the final point, is critical for our spiritual health. It's to notice the questions. Jesus asks questions. Now questions are very important in the Bible, especially in the Gospels. There's a writer and thinker called Dick Kyes, he works in a place called Labrie in Massachusetts and he studied the gospel carefully and he, he copied out and counted and analyzed all the questions that Jesus asked. Fascinating. He realized that Jesus uses questions to teach people. He makes people think through a question and sometimes, surprisingly, Jesus asks a question, asks someone a question and then literally just walks away. He doesn't stay to give them an answer. Unlike us, Jesus doesn't always feel the need to give a full explanation of everything, what is now known as mansplaining. Jesus sometimes asks a penetrating question and then leaves a person to work it out. Jesus loves questions, but there is no other place where he fires off so many questions and such a concentrated blast as here. Look with me at chapter 8 verse 17 this is when he said to them watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod and they start talking and say it's because we've got no bread okay just imagine that moment and now Jesus says verse 17 aware of their discussion count the questions why are you talking about having no bread do you still not see or understand are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Then he gets them to remember about the feedings and the loaves and how many things they picked up. And at the end of all that, in verse 21, he says, Do you still not understand? 
do you still not understand? Now, can you sense a little bit of frustration there? Maybe. You see the irony of verse 18? The blind receive their sight. The deaf get to hear. But the disciples themselves fail to see and hear. Now what this means is that you can be ever so close to Jesus Christ, right that close, and fail to see him and hear him. You can fail to believe in him and trust him even though you know a lot about him. Is this you? That's why he gives a strong warning in our text, verse 15. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. What is this yeast? Now the Pharisees, we've heard before, were a highly moralistic protest group. They wanted to establish a program of national morality and of religion that would bring in God's kingdom by human efforts at purity. They were often clashing with Jesus. We see this again and again. They've decided, in fact, they want to have him killed. In verses 11 and 12, they ask Jesus a test in question. They say, show us a sign from heaven. Some bigger, better, bolder sign that shows us that you're going to do what we expect the Messiah is going to do in this world in order to bring back the kingdom because what you've done so far doesn't quite match up to our criteria. And Jesus thinks to himself, have they not seen enough signs? Some people will never have enough evidence. No matter what Jesus does, they will not believe They will not accept his claims because they are predisposed to reject him. Jesus does not fit their categories. Jesus challenges their ideas, their cherished beliefs, or their lifestyle. So they find a reason to reject him. And to such people, there comes a point where Jesus says, Enough! You've had enough evidence to believe my claims, and your decision to continue doubting is now a moral choice. You don't want to believe, so you find a reason not to. It's no longer based on lack of evidence. It's now based on a lack of trust. Hence, he refuses to give them another sign. Now, that's the Pharisees. What about Herod? We're talking chalk and cheese here. Chalk and cheese. These are strange bedfellows. Herod was about as corrupt, worldly, and cynical as you could get. Remember how he had John the Baptist's head cut off after a drunken orgy in which his stepdaughter performed a striptease. The Pharisees were deeply committed to religion. What on earth does Herod and the Pharisees have in common? The answer is one thing, and one thing only, a stubborn refusal to believe in spite of the evidence. A stubborn refusal to believe in spite of the evidence. They have this one thing in common, one toxic fault that poisons the whole stream, They will not admit the truth, let alone embrace it. Even when it stares them in the face, even when they're right up against it, they will not accept the truth about Jesus. And so Jesus warns the disciples after that discussion with the Pharisees, watch out. And he actually says, for the leaven. I know we've got some bakers in this church. I've tasted some of your wares from time to time, and I'm reliably informed there is a difference between yeast and leaven. Yeast, we tend to think of as a sort of wholesome, natural product. You introduce it into some bread or something, some kind of natural magic happens, and boom, you've got a loaf. But leaven is a little bit different. And actually, in the Old Testament, leaven was often used as a symbol of something corrupting and evil. Because leaven wasn't just yeast. It was a batch of dough from last week's bread 
that was kept, just a piece of it, and it was kept in a cool, dark place because it didn't have fridges. And then the next time they came to make bread, they would get the old leaven and introduce it into the new badge. And the influence of the leaven would spread all the way through the loaves. Now, what happened if that batch of leaven had gone bad in the meantime? Your entire bakery, your entire bunch of loaves is corrupted. Smells inedible. Only good for throwing away. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod because this kind of unbelief, stubborn refusal to believe in spite of the evidence has a way of spreading through like the yeast, the leaven through the whole bread. You see, even Jesus' closest followers are prone to this yeast and we too refuse to believe in spite of the evidence. The proof is in verse 16. Look about how they process this comment. Jesus talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and they say, it's because we haven't got any bread. My, my. <laughs> what an extraordinary comment. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what Jesus did at that moment. I can imagine him doing something like this. <laughs> they have failed to identify themselves with the Pharisees because they're spiritually blind. You know Jesus did not choose the 12 most stupid men in the world to follow him, don't you? They are actually quite typical people. They're a representative sample of humanity and so they are a lesson for us. We should see ourselves in the disciples and ask, how could I be that dense? How could I be that dense? So ask yourself, if you're a Christian here, and we have Christians and skeptics and inquirers in this room, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to assume that you are constantly obtuse to Jesus, and so you are missing obvious lessons about him, and he needs to keep reminding you. You think you know a lot more about God and about yourself than you really do, and so we need to be humbled and humble ourselves. We need to watch out for pride and arrogance in ourselves and when we see it, confess and be ready to change. This should stop us from being a know-it-all who thinks that their role in life is to go around correcting other people. It should make us ready to be taught, to be teachable even by those younger than us, less experienced in the faith, those who are less educated, those who we think know less, we should be ready to be taught. And it should also keep us from being so preoccupied with material things that we fail to see spiritual realities. How could they say we only have one loaf in the boat? One loaf? You've got Jesus plus one loaf. I think you've got dinner. How could they say we've only got one loaf? They're so preoccupied with, have we got enough? Ah, oh, you forgot to bring the packed lunch again. And they miss that Jesus is with them. And can I suggest to you that we do this all the time, Christian friends? You worried about money? You got your credit card bill after Christmas? <laughs> 
You're looking at your bank balance and it's actually not even halfway through the month. You're wondering if your benefit payments are going to get cut. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills. You start to get so anxious about money, all your confidence drains away and you start to fixate on money. You stop trusting Jesus. You're saying, I've only got one loaf. Are there other areas in your life where you do that? Your fears about the future. I don't know what's going to become of me. I don't know if I'm going to live life unfulfilled, disappointed. Will I always be alone? How will I cope with this health problem? What about my family? You think Jesus Christ isn't big enough to deal with it? Or could it be that he's allowed those situations into your experience right now in order to teach you yet again, as patiently as he does, to depend on him? To recognize that he has got it covered, but that in the darkness and in the difficulty and the distress and the uncertainty of our lives, he will walk with us in a way we wouldn't have known otherwise. That he is right now meeting you in your place of need because you're in need. Don't be so focused on the loaf that you lose sight of the bigger reality that God in his word has told you about. More than 100 years ago, there was a huge church building right opposite Whitworth Park, just over the road here. And one of the great preachers of the Victorian age, a Scotsman called Alexander McLaren, preached there for more than 45 years. McLaren spoke about this passage, and I want to share what he said. He talked about some fish in the caverns of North America that have lived so long in the dark underground caves and channels there in the dark waters that the present generation of these fish now has no eyes. We are doing our best to deprive ourselves of our capacity to behold by refusing to use it. Having eyes, says Jesus, do you not see? Our non-use of the powers we've got, the spiritual eyes given to us in our new birth, amazes and grieves Jesus. And the reason why we have this stubbornness and this insensibility and this non-use of our capacity lies in this. You're thinking about the bread. We're so absorbed in our efforts and time with material things that perish with use. They come in between us and our understanding of Jesus' teaching. It is not only the rich person who is swallowed up with the present world, the poor man can be as well. All of us are in danger of getting our hearts so filled and crowded with things that are seen and temporal that we have no time and no room for the things that are unseen and eternal. So what's the cure for this, Christian? The cure is in the question that Jesus asks, do you remember? Do you remember? It's for us to remember Jesus and to remember our past. It was only that same day or maybe the day before that these guys had gathered up seven basketfuls of bread that they'd seen the feeding of thousands of people from a small packed lunch, and yet they could worry themselves that there was only one loaf in the boat. Do you not remember, Jesus says, when I broke the loaves among the thousands, how many baskets you took up? 
and they said seven and he said how is it that you do not understand memory is the one wing and hope is the other that lift our heaviness from earth towards heaven we need to think about Jesus what he has done for you what he has been for you what he has promised you and that will lift you above the cares of this life we need to use our eyes and that's Christians those of you who are inquiring here you're skeptical you're looking in some of you here I want to ask you do you now know that it's time to trust Jesus we love questions in this church we love answering questions asking questions thinking through the faith intelligently but let me ask what is now keeping you from faith what is keeping you your process of evaluation is an intellectual one but there's also a moral dimension we can't know with complete certainty and we are biased we're not neutral against Jesus because he wants to be Lord of all your life do you know that and do you know that it's time to trust him it's time to turn to repent and to believe in him remember what the uh, tightrope walker said before the fifth journey with the human being in the wheelbarrow all right my friend let's go let's pray Lord we're just drawn aside from the world for this short hour and a half and we've heard your voice we confess we too would have been in the boat scrabbling about for some bread we too would have doubted in spite of what we'd seen we're so prone to forget and we refuse the evidence in front of our eyes thank you Lord you're so patient Lord help us to change to grow to move on not to stay in the position of doubt and wavering and weakness but to grow in strength conviction courage so that we could face anything and Lord please would you have mercy today to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears spiritually of those here who don't know you would even today you draw one of them into your kingdom because we ask it in your name Amen